This film is lit, the podcast where we finally settle the score on one simple question. Is the book really better than the movie? I'm Brian, and I have a film degree, so I watch the movie, but don't read the book. And I'm Katie. I have an English degree, so I do things the right way and read the book before we watch the movie. So prepare to be wowed by our expertise and charm as we dissect all of your favorite film adaptations and decide if the silver screen or the written word did it better. So turn it up, settle in, and get ready for spoilers, because this film is lit. He's the sort who can't know anyone intimately, least of all a woman. But I love you. I want you to have your own thoughts and ideas and feelings, even when I hold you in my arms. It's a room with a view, and this film is lit. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We actually have quite a bit of notes. We have every segment except for Lost in Adaptation. So we're going to get right into it with our summary in Let Me Sum Up. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. If you have not read or watched A Room with a View, first, I gotta say I recommend it. Go watch it. Second, Katie, give them a recap. All right. Uh, I cribbed this from Wikipedia in the interests of transparency. I do that every time. In 1907, a young Englishwoman, Lucy Honeychurch, and her spinster cousin and chaperone, Charlotte Bartlett, stay at the Pensione Bertolini while on holiday in Florence. They are disappointed in their room's lack of a view of the Arno as promised. At dinner, they meet other English guests, the Reverend Mr. Beebe, two elderly spinster sisters, the Mrs. Allen the romance author Eleanor Lavish, and the free-thinking Mr. Emerson and his handsome philosophical son, George. Learning about Charlotte and Lucy's predicament, Mr. Emerson and George offer to exchange rooms, though Charlotte considers the suggestion indelicate. Mr. Beebe mediates, and the switch is made. While, tur- while touring the Piazza della Signoria the next day, Lucy witnesses a local man being brutally stabbed. She faints, but George Emerson appears and comes to her aid. When Lucy has recovered, the two have a personal discussion before returning to the pensione. Later, Lu- Charlotte, Lucy, and the Emersons join other British tourists for a day trip to the, fi- to the countryside. <laughs> Charlotte and Eleanor Lavish engage in conversation considered unsuitable for young ladies, so Lucy goes to look for Mr. Beebe. Instead, the Italian driver mistakenly leads her to where George is admiring the view from a hillside. Seeing Lucy, he suddenly embraces and passionately kisses her. Charlotte appears and intervenes. Worried that Lucy's mother will consider her an inadequate chaperone, Charlotte swears Lucy to secrecy and cuts their trip short. Upon returning to England, Lucy becomes engaged to Cecil Vise, a wealthy and socially prominent man who is snobbish and pretentious. Lucy soon learns that Mr. Emerson is moving into Sir Harry Otway's rental cottage, with George visiting on the weekends. George's presence upends Lucy's life and her suppressed feelings for him surface. Meanwhile, Lucy's brother, Freddie, has become friends with George. Freddie invites George to play tennis at Windy Corner, during which Cecil mockingly reads aloud from Miss Lavish's latest novel set in Italy. Lucy recognizes a scene as being identical to her encounter with George. She confronts Charlotte, who admits to telling Miss Lavish. Lucy orders George to leave Windy Corner and never return. 
He says that Cecil sees her only as a possession and will never love her for herself as he would. Lucy remains unmoved, but soon after ends her engagement to Cecil, saying they are incompatible. To escape the ensuing fallout, she arranges to travel to Greece with the Mrs. Allen. George, unable to be around Lucy, arranges for his father to move to London. When Lucy stops by Mr. Beebe's home to fetch Charlotte, she is confronted by Mr. Emerson, who happens to be there. She finally realizes her true feelings for George. At the end, newlyweds George and Lucy honeymoon in Florence in the same room with a view. There you go. That is a nice summary of the film uh, and uh, the book to some extent, at least I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So we have Guess Who, and we got quite a few of them, so it's time to play Guess Who. Who are you? No one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. Okay. He was an old man of heavy build with a fair, shaven face and large eyes. There was something childish in those eyes, though it was not the childishness of senility. Okay. So, I have to imagine... I think the childishness in the eyes, uh, being an older man, heavier build, shaved face, all of this applies to a couple people. But the main one, I, or maybe not a couple people, the one that I, the most immediately jumped to my mind was that this is Mr. Emerson. This is Mr. Emerson. Yeah. The old Mr. Emerson. Yes. the uh, George's father. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The childness, childishness uh, in the eyes is what sold it because he has a very youthful spirit Mm -hmm. shall we say for a young man his face was rugged and until the shadows fell upon it hard and shadowed it sprang into tenderness healthy and muscular he gave he yet gave her the feeling of grayness of tragedy that might only find solution in the night well this is clearly george (laughs) (laughs) this is obviously george yes it is george yeah poor sensitive george yeah uh, very much your um your emo (laughs) leading love interests for sure she was only a young lady with a quantity of dark hair and a very pretty pale undeveloped face okay well uh it's interesting i guess this could be describing because i don't know what obviously i don't know what um perspective the book is written in uh so this strikes me most uh as lucy um, being a young woman, dark hair with a quantity of dark hair, mm. meaning quite a bit, uh, and a pretty pale, undeveloped face. All of those are literally, I would, I mean, to a T, I would say that is Helena Bottom Carter. Yes, yeah. it is Lucy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, the, the novel is in, uh, it's in third person. There's a narrator. Um, and we kind of follow Lucy most of the time, but mm. we do occasionally like shift to other characters in a more limited perspective. Gotcha. Okay, up next, uh, we have a man whose head was bald and who wore a pair of russet whiskers. Um, this nobody jumps to my mind immediately. Uh, Mr. Beeb, he might be bald, but I, I don't know if he had, I don't think he has red, a red beard. I don't think he has a beard at all. Uh, this does not fit Cecil at all. Um, trying to think of who else this could be i guess it no it's not it wouldn't be her brother he's too young um he also has lots of hair mm. uh, a quantity of it one yeah, might say. quantity um i uh, who else 
I'm going to say this is Mr. B because I just don't have a better guess. Because the only other people I could guess would be like maybe the guy who gets stabbed in Italy or. I'm trying to think of other dudes that are important in the story. And we already had Mr. Emerson, George. It's not Cecil, Cecil, and it's. It could be Mr. Beeb, and the only other person I can think of is that's a guy who's important is her brother, and it's not him. So I'm going to say this is Mr. Beeb. It is Mr. Beeb. Hooray. Trust your gut. It just uh, doesn't really <laughs> fit him from the film. Yeah, but, no, not really. But yeah. All right, last one. He was medieval, like a gothic statue, tall and refined, with shoulders that seemed braced square by an effort of will, and a head that was tilted a little higher than the usual level of, vi- of vision. Well-educated, well-endowed, and not defici- deficient physically. I-, I would have to assume that this would be Cecil. That is Cecil, yes. yes. Yeah, and the main one there, because it's a pretty, like, um, I would say that's a fairly, like, sympathetic, or not sympathetic, but, like, positive flattering uh description um apart from uh with shoulders that seem braced square by an effort of will and uh and the head tilted a little higher than the usual level of vision those two things yeah are like the giveaways there but anyways all i got all of them you did Uh, they they were pretty spot on like in general other than mr beeb which i just kind of processed of elimination the rest of them i would say very spot on. So, all right. I have a lot of questions, so it's time to find out, was that in the book? Nicholas Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone. The what? Honestly, don't you two read? In the film, when we open up, we get these opening credits that are very interesting. Uh, we, we, they, they almost, we get like a, a location and then the characters relevant to that location is what it seemed like mm-hmm. or something. And with the character and the actors playing them, those characters, but then also some of the characters get like little brief descriptions of like who they are, where yeah. it's like, it, it's like Charlotte and it's like the spinster, uh, chaperone of Lucy or something like that. I don't think that's what it is, but something like that, like a, a few word description kind of like of how they fit into the story. And I, I thought that was interesting. And I wanted to know if there was anything, and it's also illustrated in sort of almost like an illuminated manuscript style look, uh, in the film. Um, it's probably not the exact right term for what's going on there, but it's kind of vaguely like in that, like medieval illuminated manuscript style kind of thing. It it reminded me a lot of some of the, like the credits you might see in a a Monty Python in the Holy grail or something like that. (laughs) Um, anyways, I wanted to know if there was anything that you felt like from the book that they pulled inspiration for those opening credits from, like, if there's anything like that in terms of like giving like weird little character descriptions at the beginning to kind of set the stage or, or anything to do with like the illuminated. I mean, obviously I guess that could depend on the version of the book you have in terms of like the illuminations and stuff. But anyways, if anything you felt like came from the book there. Uh, no, um, there aren't character descriptions. There aren't illustrations, at least in the copy that I have. Um, but I, I did like that mm-hmm. in the film. It reminded me vaguely of like the character list at the front of a Shakespeare play. Yeah. 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 Very much. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. I thought it worked well. I'm not usually a fan of opening credits, but I thought in this instance that it, because it gave you a little more information and was done in an interesting way, I enjoyed it. Yeah. So yeah, cool. 
I have a lot of questions about quotes because this is a very quotable movie. Uh, and the first one that came up was, I believe this is a conversation between Mr. Emerson and, and somebody else or Mr. Beeb. I can't remember who's having this conversation. Uh, but somebody says that somebody was being indelicate and the other person responds by saying, Things that are indelicate can sometimes be beautiful. I thought that was a nice line, and I wanted to know if that came from the book. There's a very close line, so it's not exact, but the line from the book is, have you ever noticed that there are people who do things which are most indelicate, and yet at the same time, beautiful? Yeah, interesting, or similar idea. A mm -hmm. little bit different, because um, it's it's tying it more specifically to the actions of people. Yes. Whereas the movie quote to me comes across much more as like a more overarching statement. Yeah, it's a about little broader beauty and the nature of beauty or whatever. Uh, and so I thought that was interesting, but it's definitely a similar idea. So it clearly inspired, you know, clearly they took that line and just reworked it. I don't know which I prefer. It also contextually may kind of matter, you know, mm -hmm. one may work more contextually in the book whereas the line from the film may not have. But I, I really liked that line, and I thought it was nice. So it's nice to know it at least somewhat comes from the book. We get this thing when we're after we're introduced in Italy to uh, George Emerson and his father. When we're first introduced to George, it's at dinner, as you described. And Lucy turns to him, and I, I, at first I wasn't sure if any of these people knew each other. Mm -hmm. Like, that was a thing that I found. And I still am unsure if Mr. B was friends with them prior to... Lucy and Charlotte knew Mr. Beeb. They had seen him like at a church elsewhere. Because okay. when they go back to London or England, they're like hanging out and stuff. Yeah. So I assumed they knew him before going to Italy because yeah. like he clearly lives in the same town as them or whatever. Um, but it OK. So they were at least aware of him, if not like friends with him prior to mm -hmm. Italy. OK. Anyways, we're, when we're first introduced to, to George and Mr. Emerson, George is eating dinner and he turns his plate to Lucy and it's got like a big question mark made out of his food on it. And then um, later when they, after they do the room switch, they go into his room and one of the paintings on the wall is flipped backwards and there's a question mark drawn on it in pencil. And then he walks in and like flips it around. And I, I I'm still not sure what I, what I'm supposed to be getting from this or what the play is here. Uh, or what his, well, you know, what his ploy was here. Uh, but I wanted to know if it came from the book. And I guess is a little lost in adaptation. If there's any expansion on like what he was doing there. Is it just flirting in a weird way? Like what is going on with that? Um, okay. So in the book, he does leave a big question mark drawn on a piece of paper pinned up in the room. Uh, the question mark on his plate at dinner and then him coming back into the room to like turn the picture around are both movie editions. Um, and I did like those editions. Mm -hmm. uh, overall, the movie gave Lucy and George more little moments of interaction while they were in Italy, which I think worked really well for their relationship arc overall. Mm -hmm. As to what the question mark means, it's a good question. It's a question I don't know the answer to. Yeah. I would hazard to guess that that has something to do with like um maybe a philosophical movement from around the time that I don't know anything about or like cuz cuz George is like a philosopher right like a sensitive poet type um so I think he is like flirting in a weird way 
But I, I guess what I'm saying is that that might have meant something more to a reader in 1908 than it does to me here now. And I mean, it could definitely I, I, that that makes sense. It could somehow be tied into a philosophical movement. I, I just th- had this thought that it could be tied into a, a question I have here a little bit later when they mention the everlasting why. Yeah, maybe it's somehow in reference to that. I just thought it was very. I felt in the film, I felt like we were jumping in like in media res and mm-hmm. I we we weren't like to me, it felt like this was not that dinner scene was not their first time meeting. And this was him like subtly signaling their, like he had they had had a conversation previously and he had like asked her out or something. And he was like, eh? like, that's what it felt like <laughs> yeah. again, jumping into the film, not knowing anything about it. Uh, and then it became clear that that was not the case, that it was just something like, you know, he just kept drawing this question mark. Uh, and it, it, again, it could be tied to the, the the everlasting why maybe. And maybe that is some part of some broader popular mm-hmm. philosophical movement uh, yeah, or something, something. Um, because it does seem a very strange way to flirt with a person, which George is a strange guy. I get strange, that. Yes. But still, it I don't know. I just. <laughs> It was very interesting to me, and I would be interested if people had more information on that, what what was going on there. If you have any thoughts on uh, George's question marks, yeah. let us know. Uh, there's this scene where, I think it's at dinner, they're talking about cornflowers, and then um, later on, uh, the two older uh, spinsters, the, uh, the Mrs. Allen, are they're talking about cornflowers and their favorite flowers and blah 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 and then later uh, george and mr emerson apparently go collect a bunch and they bring them back to their room and are like giving them all these cornflowers um and uh then later on we see one of them come in one of the mrs allen come into another room and she has a bunch of them in her hair which and i all of that i thought was very cute and i wanted to know if any of that came from the book uh, so the the Miss Allens do relate a story about how the Emersons filled their room with flowers at one point, mm-hmm. but we don't see it happen in the book, and there isn't anything about them having flowers in their hair. So overall, better in the movie, like you said, very cute. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it's Mr. Beeb or whatever who's like, Mrs. Allen, you have flowers in your hair. And mm-hmm. she's like, ah. it's fun. I just liked it. Uh, so then we uh, we cut to them going, you know, they're touring Florence or they're, they're being led around and they're I think their tour group basically is being led by like a, an English chaplain or something like that. Yeah. Well, they're not with that. They're tour not with group, that group. But sorry, they, yeah. they encounter they're, that yeah, tour group. In they run church. into that tour group uh, at one of the Italian or one of the Florentian churches. Um, and the, that that chaplain says something along the lines of like. Uh, oh, this this chapel built by faith or something. And then Mr. Emerson has an aside to, I think, Lucy and whoever else is standing there uh, where he says built by faith. Indeed, simply means the workers weren't paid properly. Uh, and I love Mr. Emerson. He's the best. He's my favorite <laughs> character. <laughs> and I wanted to know if that line came from the book. That line is verbatim from the book. <laughs> Fantastic. And I was hoping that you would appreciate Mr. Emerson. <laughs> He's delightful. I love him. Uh, which is, I was really delighted to see, because I, I didn't realize the, the actor's name when we were doing the, the prequel and stuff. Um, he's played by, and now I can't remember, uh, Denholm Elliott. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that name didn't I, I recognize the name, but I couldn't put put together like who I what I knew of that name from or who he was. Um, but then upon watching the movie, it was became very clear uh, immediately. I was like, oh, my goodness, he's Brody from the Indiana Jones movies. And he plays a very similar, especially in The Last Crusade. 
he's like the best friend of like Indiana Jones's father, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's in, I think he's in the uh, Raiders and uh, Last Crusade, but he's more prominent role in Last Crusade. But he is like a similar, like affable, goofy, like um, artist. Like mm-hmm. he's like a, he, he, him, he, they, they like, they have all these like silly, like he went to school with Indiana Jones's father and they have like all these silly things together. And he's like a, anyways, uh, kind of a similar ish character, not the same by any stretch, but similar ish. Um, and I thought he was fantastic and I love that character. And that line is great. <laughs> so it's nice to know that it was written in 1907 or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Continuing him and, uh, Lucy, I believe have a come or it might be with Charlotte. I can't remember who it's with Lucy. Is it with Lucy? Yeah. He's having, uh, Mr. Emerson is having a conversation with Lucy and, uh, George is in the distance, um, being like emo and mopey and, and, and weird. Um, and I mean that in, in a loving way, uh, but <laughs> in, the, in the best possible, in the best way. possible way. Yes. Um, which we'll talk more about later because I have a note about it. But um, he's talking to Lucy and he says something about, you know, he's explaining how his son was raised without religion and um, it's done good for his upbringing. But he has this sort of. Ennui. Ennui or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, growing up uh, the way raised in a philosopher's home or whatever. Um, yeah, he, he he deals with the ennui that many of us uh, do in that regard. And uh, he says, I hope um, that you can show my boy that at the side of the everlasting why there is a yes and a yes and a yes. Um, again, it's a very poetic, beautiful way of describing one of the central conflicts of kind of the whole story. Um, but specifically within George, which is actually a thing that, that he kind of just gets over. Like, a, like mm-hmm. it's actually interesting because I thought they were going to set him up as much more of like a mopey, emotional character than he ends up being. Mm-hmm. Like he's a very sentimental, like um, feeling uh, uh, empathic character, but yes. he's not like mopey or like like again in this scene, I thought he was going she was going to have to like. I don't know, like 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 the way he sets this up here is like show my boy that at the side of the everlasting why there's a yes and a yes and a yes. I thought, you know, he's going to be like a Mr. Like uh, he's going to be uh, Edward from, you know, Twilight. He's going to be like Mr. Mopey and that she's going to like bring this joy into his life. And it doesn't really feel that way. Like he seems to have that zest already, but mm-hmm. maybe it just kind of comes and goes. Anyways, I really like this line and I wanted to know if it came from the book. Again, we have another close one. The line in the book is make him realize that by the side of the everlasting why there is a yes, a transitory yes, if you like, but a yes. And I, I, I do prefer the movie line. I also like the book line a lot. Mm-hmm. The transitory yes, if you like, I because I, I mean, what that's really getting at um, at the core of it is in, in, in a philosophy where you do not have an ultimate meaning derived from religion or a God or what have you, um, as it is very clear in this story that Mr. Emerson and George are both atheists, at least to some extent, um, and do not, you know, believe in religion or God or whatever. Finding meaning within that philosophy is something that I think as an atheist myself, I think a lot of us, you know, struggle with at times or have struggled with during our deconversion or at different times in our life whether or not you were ever were religious. Cause for me, I never was religious, but there were times when I was, especially when I was younger where I dealt with that, you know, again, what is the point of all of this kind mm-hmm. of question? And I just love the poetic way he puts it. And, and, and the book quote, I think 
works because the transitory yes that is a big thing it's like yes that the, the yes the reason the meaning is transitory it's fleeting we make it up as we go it doesn't necessarily mean anything in a grander scale but on a personal level it is incredibly important and incredibly meaningful um so i like that but the i will say the movie's version is more dramatic is more yes. you know i, I like the, the yes and the yes, yes and the yes, yes. It, it hits hard it works really well it just loses a little yeah. bit of what the book has in terms of like some nuance, but I do. I, 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 I like it a lot. I think I do prefer the movie's version, but clearly uh, very obviously came from the book. Yeah. Um, real quick. I just want to say I'm, I'm very pleased because I literally I have a note in my reading notes, page 229. I hope Brian appreciates the atheism in this. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's one of the reasons I, I so quickly latched on to Mr. Emerson and George to some extent. But yeah, I very clearly, uh, which I, I hadn't read anything about Ian Forster. I assume he, they very, those characters very much feel like, mm-hmm. um, at least to some extent, author. Yeah, like author. It's not necessarily kind of, insert, yeah. but like, yeah, at least to some extent, off, uh, author philosophical insert. Yeah. It feels like they are providing his philosophical point of view uh if if not at all of his points of view but um so anyways yeah no absolutely i thought that was i was into it so then we get to the big sort of uh inciting not inciting incident but a little bit uh where she's out in the square that i can't remember the the italian name of that you mentioned earlier and she sees a disagreement between a couple men and then they get into a shoving match and then one of the men gets a knife and stabs the other one in the stomach and he rather relatively quickly dies um as the the crowd tries to like kind of help him and takes him over to the fountain and tries to do minimal c you know whatever minimal cpr they had in 1907 or whatever um and i wanted to and then uh she passes out george catches her and then they kind of like bond over this um dramatic experience that they both had and i wanted to know if that whole event came from the book Yes, it does. Uh, that is one of the like major turning points in the book, as it is in the movie. Although, I, so I will say the movie version is more horrifying than what's described in the book. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I'm just gonna read real quick. It's very short. I forgot to find this page. Um, they sparred at each other, and one of them was hit lightly upon the chest. He frowned. He bent towards Lucy with a look of interest, as if he had an important message for her. He opened his lips to deliver it, and a stream of red came out between them and trickled down his unshaven chin. That was all. A crowd rose out of the dusk. It hid this extraordinary man from her and bore him away to the fountain. So we just see more of it, because that's like literally exactly what happens, down to the blood trickling out of his mouth and him seeming to try to talk or something. Like, it's identical. It's just we then follow to the fountain. We see more of it, and I think the movie, I think, plays it up a little bit more. Um, We see more of, like, his face. Okay. And there's, like, the dramatic music and, like... Well, well, obviously, I mean, you get the experience of watching a movie as opposed to just reading it. But what you read, I would envision exactly what I saw in the film up until the point, again, where when they take him to the fountain, the camera goes with them and we kind of Mm -hmm. watch that all take place where she has passed out. Lucy has passed out at this point. But, yeah, I I think it's a very faithful adaptation. Mm -hmm. I'm very clearly, uh, very clearly from the book. Uh, another thing the movie does kind of similar to the opening credits is we get these little scene transitions throughout the course of the film, a handful of them. I don't know, four or five, maybe 
uh, where when they go from place to place, I think in this instance, it's literally we um, they're in Italy there. Or no, we're not we're not we're not back in England yet, but they're I don't remember what it is. There's some little scene transition comes up that it might even be let's say something like a ride with. Yes. <laughs> or something yeah. like that, like a carriage ride with uh, whatever. Yeah, you get like. um yeah, like title cards for the like scenes. a title card for some of the scenes, not every single one, but a handful of them. And I wanted to know if those came from the like the title cards were pulled like from the book in some way. They are the chapter titles. Well, there you go. That <laughs> would make sense. That would make sense. Uh, I don't remember who says this or what the context of this is. I, well, they're on the they're on the um, they're riding in the carriages, mm-hmm. but I don't remember who says this. I think I think in the book, it's Mr. Eager who says it. The older um, Anglican oh, the pastor, other pre- yeah, 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 the yeah. other who reverend the who's with there, that other yeah. Group. yeah, yeah, and, and it might be him or it might be Mr. Emerson. I can't remember, but they're talking about an American, and one of them says uh, that he was an American of the best type. So rare, and I that cracked me up, and I wanted to know if that came from the book. It is from the book. It also cracked <laughs> me up when I read it. I was like, ha, suck at Americans. <laughs> I mean, if it's fa- fair, it's enough. fair is fair. Fair is fair. I mean, it's rich coming from the British, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> uh, uh, so on this carriage ride, one of the the carriage in the front with um with the old Anglican priest or whatever, and uh, I think Mister Emerson and Lucy and Charlotte maybe might be the four people in that one. I, I can't remember. So, anyways, but I know the old priest and Mr. Emerson are in this carriage. The mm-hmm. carriage driver is this Italian guy, and he has like a young woman with him, and they're like canoodling in the front uh, as they're driving down the um, the road. And the and the old chaplain guy who you mentioned um, like insists that they stop. He's like telling them to stop. Uh, and meanwhile, Mr. Emerson is like, leave them alone. And he says this, oh, leave them alone. Do we find happiness so often that we should put a stop to it when it sits there? I love him so much. He's my favorite character <laughs> in the <laughs> movie. I love him. Um, and I wanted to know if that scene, that like moment, and specifically that line, I, I, I should have clarified that I was asking about that line. If you don't know for sure mm. about that specific line, anyways, does that come from the book? Uh, yes, and I did, in fact, find the line for you. So that whole scene is from the book um, with the the driver and the young woman and Mr. Eager insisting that they not be canoodling. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Emerson says, do we find happiness so often that we should turn it off the box when it happens to sit there? And I think that is the exact line from the movie. I think I, I was just trying to, like, quickly yeah. write it down what yeah. I remembered. And I think he does say turn it off the box when it happens to sit there. Um, so yeah, right from the book, Mr. Emerson's the best. Okay. This, <laughs> this line got me good. Uh, when they get to have, they're like having a picnic in the countryside, which is where they're going Yeah. on these carriages. They get out there and uh, Charlotte and Mrs. Lavish or Miss Lavish or whatever, mm-hmm. Judy Dench in the film. Um, they get out there and uh, Lucy runs off to go do something or whatever. And uh, <laughs> as they're setting up their picnic, um, Miss Slavish pulls out a blanket or something and says, observe my foresight and like foof, flops <laughs> it out and sets it down because the ground is kind of damp or something. And that got me so good. And I am going to start saying observe my foresight whenever I have planned ahead for something and want to show off like a, a jerk. <laughs> I'm just going to say observe my foresight. It, it was great. I loved it. I want to know if it comes from the book. 
it is from the book and i hope you do <laughs> do that it's just it was i i was not expecting it and just it's such a funny cocky thing like weird <laughs> thing to say observe my form it's like she's doing a magic trick and it's like haha look at this i got a blank i don't know it just it's it really tickled me i really enjoyed it uh so then we get uh to the big kiss uh george is just standing in this meadow mm. in this field and Lucy kind of wanders down towards him uh, and he turns around and looks at her and she looks at him and no words are spoken. And then he just kind of walks up and kisses her uh, through this meadow. And it's uh, it's great. Uh, it, he's so awkward and adorable and dumb. Like the whole scene was like awkward and dumb, but really sexy and beautiful. It was it was just wonderfully shot and wonderfully acted and so weird, like not weird, but just I don't know. Something about it was very interesting, mm -hmm. and I wanted to know if you felt like it translated from the book directly. Uh, yes and no. Um, and I I love this scene in the movie. I love it so much. It looks like an oil painting. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't know if you noticed me like sit up and pay attention. <laughs> no, I was, <laughs> I was taking my own notes. Scene so. Started, but it's my one of my favorite scenes from the whole movie. Um, but I do love the description in the book. Um, so it's in the movie. What we see is like a field of golden barley, mm -hmm. which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um. What happens in the book is that she's kind of coming like up to a ledge and she like kind of tumbles down this ledge into a sea of flowers. And like she oh, so okay. she like kind of tumbles down and then she's like right by him. Yeah. At the same moment, the ground gave way and with a little cry, she fell out of the wood. Light and beauty enveloped her. She had fallen upon a little open terrace, which was covered with violets from end to end. Courage, cried her companion, now standing some six feet above. Courage and love. She did not answer. From her feet, the ground sloped sharply into view, and the violets ran down in rivulets and streams and cataracts, irrigating the hillside with blue, eddying round the tree stems, collecting into pools in the hollows, covering the grass with spots of azure foam. But never again were they in such profusion. This Terence was the wellhead, the primal source from whence beauty gushed out to water the earth. I mean, yeah, that's very beautiful. Very beautiful <clears throat> description of that. I don't. I do prefer in the film that no. I assume that the companion is George, or is it somebody else? Um, that yelled from above. I think it's George. It's kind of a confusing scene. And then does he like come down to her, I guess, or something? Yeah. I don't know. It just, I, yeah, it doesn't really matter because my point is that I, I really like in the film that they don't, nobody says anything. It just kind of happens in this weird, clumsy, awkward way. I don't know. Um, so picking up right where I stopped off. Standing at its brink like a swimmer who prepares was the good man, but he was not the good man she had expected, and he was alone. George had turned at the sound of her arrival. For a moment he contemplated her, as one who had fallen out of heaven. He saw radiant joy in her face, he saw the flowers beat against her dress in waves of blue, the bushes above them closed, he stepped quickly forward and kissed her. So that, to me, sounds like he was already down there. And so I think maybe Charlotte was up above because she sees it. So, right. Well, it's the the driver who was with her who like led her there. OK, 
So that's so I think who that was yeah. or saying whatever. Yeah. Anyways, my point was I, I'm glad that they didn't have somebody like like her tripping and then somebody being like, whoa, be careful. Like basically whatever. I, I just yeah. It's a similar. It's just slightly different. But mm-hmm. I, the, the pros describing the, the the location, the scene was, yeah, very, very beautiful. Uh, and then after that moment where basically uh, they she kisses him or he kisses her and then Charlotte sees it and then they go back to their hotel or whatever. And Charlotte turns to George and is like, we need I need to talk to you. And then it literally hard cuts. We get a title card that just says home and then they're back in England. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know if we have such an abrupt sort of similar abrupt jump from Italy back to England. Cause it was very striking where I was like, we, I felt like we were going to get more scene there and then it just cuts and we're just back in England sometime later. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. That is what happens in the book. The last we see in Italy is Charlotte and Lucy packing to leave. Um, and then we time jump and we're back in England. Specifically, does it feel as abrupt as it does in the film? I guess that's the thing I'm sp- specifically asking for or if that is a movie choice because to me again she turns to george charlotte turns to george and like comes walking towards him and it says we need to talk and it feels like we're going to get more scene of some sort and then it just cuts and we're back in england and i thought that was really interesting okay so uh at the end of the last chapter in italy uh, i wish one word with you in the drawing room mr emerson please that's charlotte Mm mm-hmm Soon their footsteps returned, and Miss Bartlett said, So no. Good night, Mr. Emerson. His heavy, tired breathing was the only reply. The chaperone had done her work. Lucy cried aloud, It isn't true. It can't all be true. I want not to be muddled. I want to grow older quickly. Miss Bartlett tapped on the wall. Go to bed at once, dear. You need all the rest you can get. In the morning, they left for Rome. So no. And then it cuts to part two, England. Right. So that so was it's not as abrupt, not even close. That is. So that's what I would expect the film to have done. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was asking, because what the film does is the line where she says, Mr. George, Mr. Emerson, I need to have a whatever she said. It literally as soon as she says that it just cuts yeah. title card in England. That is an interesting choice to me. And I think it works really well um, in its abruptness that I found a fascinating movie filmmaking decision. Cause I, it took me off guard mm-hmm. in a way that I was not expecting with the way the pace of the editing and the way the film had been constructed to that point. Something about that really worked for me. So it, that's what I wanted to know. Okay. It does not come from the book. Yeah, no, no, I guess not then. I thought you were asking more about the time jump. Cause there is like a time that, jump. that I was asking about that, but and that's why I clarified. I'm talking about how abrupt it is and mm-hmm. again, how sort of jarring that, mm-hmm. that transition is without finishing the scene in a way that feels complete, complete. Yeah. Yes. Anyways. OK. Because I, I did my question that I wrote was not as explicit of what I was <laughs> asking there. So <laughs> I just wanted to clarify. All right. Uh, so we are we're back in England. We are now introduced to Cecil. Uh, the the new love interest who um, Lucy has, by the time we meet him in the film, has agreed at least to see, if not marry. I can't. Yeah, we, we come upon them right as she has accepted his proposal. Yes. And I wanted to know, we're introduced to him very quickly, and I wanted to know if Cecil is as insufferable as the film version. 
He's constantly <laughs> like speaking Italian and slash French just for no reason other than to show that he can um, just completely obnoxious pretension. But also the thing that I thought was really interesting and I want to know if it comes from the book is that he's clearly like kind of well-meaning and I, this becomes even more clear as the story goes on. And when we get to the end and we'll see if it plays out the same way in the book, but like, it's very clear. To, it was very clear to me in the film that while he's just the worst and you just can't stand him, he's very clearly a victim of his upbringing and it's not a malicious mm-hmm. pretension. It doesn't feel like, like it feels like he's unaware of what an obnoxious twat he is. <laughs> and I wanted to know, I feel like that's the only context you can use that word word. Like for him, like that's the word, that's the time to use that word. And I wanted to know if, if that was how you felt about his character in the book. So the movie nails Cecil okay. to a T. Uh, he is completely insufferable. He's, he's got smartest man in the room syndrome. Yes. But like he's not trying yes. to be that yes. way. Absolutely. It's just who he is as a person. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yes. But... Um, but yeah, he's and he you're right. It's not malicious, even though he does like kind of malicious things. Yeah. But he thinks that he's being like. He thinks he's doling out justice, kind of, kind of is yeah. what it is. Yeah. And it's when just, he's malicious. Yeah. And I, it's just so very clear to me, at least, that he is. Uh, it's one of the things I enjoyed about the movie a lot, and it it would very much tie into what it seems like Ian Forster's sort of philosophical views are um, that he is as guilt or as much of a victim of his upbringing and circumstances as everybody else is, mm-hmm. and the fact that he's just the worst person, yeah, that you can't f- just stand to be around yeah. is not again. It's not like he's evil. It's not no, like he's, he's doing it on purpose or knows that he's being obnoxious. He just is. Yeah, he's pretentious and obnoxious and rude, but he feels incredibly justified in all of that. And I, I, it's not. I would say it's not even that he feels justified in it. He doesn't even realize he's being those things. Is how it came across in the film to me. Like he, it's it's he, it's not that he feels justified in being at least not all the time. I think there are times where that's the case, but I think a lot of times he doesn't even realize that he is being as obnoxious as he is, which I think is true of a lot of people who are obnoxious, yeah. obviously. But I don't know. It just I, I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah, I think you're. Yeah, because I think sometimes he's just completely unaware because, like, like I said, this is just who he is as a person and but then like even when he has his rudeness pointed out to him he's very quick to defend it yes and i have a note about this later uh, that that we'll get to when i I think in our odds and ends that i want to talk about comparing him and george Mm -hmm. that i want to get to and i want to get to it here because i don't want to go find the note honestly (laughs) we'll get to it in a little bit but i do want to talk about because I think there's a, a an interesting similarity between yeah. those two characters. Yeah, and, and my point, like, just to further expand, even when he's, like, defending his his bad behavior, it's not defensive, like, oh, he knows he was wrong. Right. It's defensive, like, no, I'm right. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. He's he's the victim of being told that he's right and perfect his whole life because he went yeah. to Eaton or whatever, and yeah, he's just the worst. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by the way, you asked. I, I don't know if you have it later. You asked me when we started watching this film, and mm-hmm. I was saving it for this moment because I figured it out immediately, but I didn't want to spoil it. I wanted to make it. You asked uh, right before his character was introduced. We paused the movie, and you turned to me and said, "Okay." There's a character in something in a movie we have watched for the podcast in the recent past that I think the actor was modeling their performance off of uh, Daniel Day Lewis's mm-hmm. performance as Cecil in this film. And within about a minute <laughs> of watching, I, I had to go look up the character's name because I could not remember. I was like, well, I, I know who it is, but I don't remember the character's name or anything like that. Um, I assume this is who you're talking about. Maybe I'll be wrong, but. <laughs> You were like, uh, there's a character or an act or a performance in a movie we watched that I think is modeling it off of this. And I agree 100% because I think that you're talking about the Duke from Mulan. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I had to go look up because I couldn't. I was like, I don't know his name. And then I remembered he doesn't have a name. Yeah. He's just the Duke. Um, but yes, uh, the Duke from Mulan Rouge. Absolutely. Yeah. I think very clearly that actor used Daniel Day Lewis's performance Pulling here some notes. as yeah, some cribbing some notes for sure, for sure. Uh, so speaking of Cecil, uh, they 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 go for a walk together and they're down by a pond and uh, they're kind of having a, a a a discussion, and at the end of it, Cecil basically says, you know, we haven't even kissed yet, uh, and then he says, may I kiss you? And she's like, yeah. And then they share the world's most awkward kiss. It's horrible. It's horrifying. It's awful. Brilliantly acted in how awkward and terrible and and secondhand embarrassment. Yes, prepare for secondhand embarrassment if you have not seen this. Yes, uh, it it took me back. There's a there was an old like popular video. uh, I think it was a promo or it was from an episode from like a TLC show or something where it was like people who who got married with like, like an old style mm-hmm. marriage where they like, didn't they yeah. like courted and like never kissed or anything. And then they kissed for the first time, like at their wedding. And there was this very popular, like meme of like this couple kissing for the, and it's like that kiss where it's just the most awkward, like closed mouth mushing together. <laughs> like clearly. Yeah. It, it's that. Um, but during that kiss, um, he like moves his face in a weird way where it like bumps his he he wears these pince nez all the time. Yes. If you don't know what pince nez are, they're like eyeglasses, but they tiny they're the tiny little spectacles that just like clip on the bridge of your nose. Yeah, they like clip on your nose and they don't have t- traditional um like ear mm-hmm. things, whatever those are called. I don't know what those are called. The things that go over uh, your ears on glasses. That yeah, got a name, know. I'm sure, but it doesn't have those. It ear just, holders. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> it just uh, Morpheus from uh, the Matrix, where those his are sunglasses. Um, but yeah, they sit on the bridge of your nose, and it like knocks him off. And I wanted to know if that little detail came from the book because one, I almost felt like it could have been like a happy accident in filming the scene <laughs> and they were like, perfect. We'll go with it or, or a great choice by the actors or the director or whatever. Uh, I want to know if it came from the book. That does come from the book. Amazing. <laughs> Glad to know he wears pince <laughs> in the book. And they I think the go. best part about that moment in the book is that that is when we learn that his character wears pince <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> amazing. 
Um, so kind of getting back to the discussion of Cecil and him not being aware of how terrible and obnoxious he is, is they're having a conversation and I don't remember the exact context of it. I think they're talking about George and his dad moving in or something. Yeah, or? they're talking about um, because Lucy had been putting plans in motion to have the Miss Allens move into this rental cottage. Yes. And then Cecil kind of undercuts her um, and helps the Emersons move in. Oh, um, I didn't catch that. That's yeah. fun. Uh, and, hoist by his own petard. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and he does it on purpose because he doesn't like Sir Harry, who's the guy who rents the cottages out. And what what is doing this have to do with him not liking? Because <laughs> he meets the Emersons and he's immediately like, oh, these people are ridiculous. Oh. I'm going to move them into town oh, okay. to mess with people. OK, I do actually vaguely remember a line or discussion of that now that you mention it from the film. There yeah. is something about that, but I just couldn't like as a punishment for anyways. Yeah, he specifically gets them into the cottage to like mess with Sir Harry because okay. he doesn't like him. And but during this conversation, he's talking to Lucy and he says, "I think the classes should intermix. I believe in democracy or something like that." He's talking about how the you know because he's a, he's a very um, erudite, rich guy, uh -huh. uh, part of the bourgeoisie. Uh, actually, yeah. What? Anyways, um, and is uh, it like the classes should intermix? I believe in democracy, and I love Lucy. Turns around and goes, "No, you don't." And I was <laughs> I lost it. I I could not. Um, and and he, he even has a line about how, you know, he he's like, I just he again, I love that he doesn't see himself as a snob. And mm -hmm. like in his own head, he has fabricated this version of himself that is way more noble and moral and yes, and um, egalitarian than the actual version of himself is. Um, and I, I thought that was a fascinating character twist, not twist, but like character uh, quirk. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know if that that exchange came from the book. Yes, this entire exchange is directly from the book. Um, I love it. I also love his line. Um, he says it after in the movie, but I think it's before the line about democracy in the book when he's talking about um, why he has gone to these lengths to move the Emersons into the cottage. He says, anything is fair that punishes a snob. Oh, yeah. And I was like, ooh, are we foreshadowing ourselves Absolutely. here, Absolutely. That's a great foreshadow. <laughs> Absolutely. That's fantastic. I must agree. Anything <laughs> is fair that punishes a snob. Oh, that's funny. We then get a conversation... Um, we, I don't remember again I'm having a hard time remembering the exact context of this because most of this is just like in houses or in yard like there's not like there's not like set pieces that make it easy to remember yeah. when conversations happen um but uh I, oh I think this is in this they're is, going to the, yes, the take a bath right when uh George and Freddie and uh Mr. Beeb are yes. going to the lake to take a bath to, to bathe in the in the yes. in the pond or whatever and they're on their way there and Emerson or Beeb and George are having a conversation together and they're having a sort of a philosophical conversation and I again I don't even remember the context of what Beeb says to lead into this necessarily but he um something about basically uh, Beeb says something about Italy and do you? He says uh, they're talking about um, like fate and coincidence. Yes. And Mr. Beeb says that there, like, he's like, there might be such a thing, but it's far less common than we actually think. It's not a coincidence that you're here. Uh, you ended up here because we all love like Italian things. Yes. And 
interacted with yes. each other because we were seeking those things out. Yes. And then George responds by saying, it is fate. I'll call it Italy, though, if it pleases you, Vicar. And I lo- he's such a romantic. Yeah. I love it. Um, I would find it obnoxious, but I also <laughs> love it. Like, it's fun to watch. I think I would roll my eyes at him if he said that to me. But I enjoy it <laughs> in the context uh, and watching his character. Um, I-, I would try not to roll my eyes at him if he said that to me. Because I'd be like, well, you're a sweetheart. And then... <laughs> <laughs> like, all right. Um, but uh, it's it's a, it's a nice line, and I wanted to know if that came from the book. It's another one that's very, very close. In the book, George says, It is fate that I am here, but you can call it Italy if it makes you less unhappy. Okay, I prefer the movie version there mm-hmm. for sure. Um, just, uh, it is fate. I'll call it Italy if it pleases you, Vicar. I think is very good. Also, I just, anytime you can throw the word Vicar in there, I think <laughs> it's just good. It's a good word. I like saying it. <laughs> so, <laughs> big fan. Uh, speaking of the bathing in the pond, uh, I, I thought this was very interesting. This movie, I, I wonder what this was rated. I guess it yeah, might have came out before. No, it's 85. 85. That was the ratings, the ratings and stuff. I don't know, because there's there's, there's a lot of penis. A lot of penis in this in the, scene. Yes. Uh, like a lot of it uh, just running around. It's, uh, not, it's not a sexual not context. Sexual so that penis. may be how they got away with yeah. it. I don't actually know. It's, it's maybe the most unsexual penis I've ever seen yeah, in a movie. Very. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's very much not. Um, you know, it's akin to like in the I think there's a scene in Game of Thrones where we see a. Hodor is just like walking around naked or something mm. for some reason. Um, it kind of a, so they're just like taking a bath and they're just naked. But anyways, um, do we get a scene from the book where a bunch of naked dudes are just broing out in the pond, wrestling, wrestling, chasing each other <laughs> around, having a good old uh, bro time? Want to know if that came from the book? Yes, it does. Uh, and then does Lucy stumble upon them and see? Uh, yeah, they they run naked, out. Guess, they run yeah. out into the road, and Lucy and Mrs. Honeychurch and Cecil are all out in the road. And yes, that does happen in the book. Fantastic. What a scene. Everyone gets an eye fall. What a scene. <laughs> um, and then, then something happens that I was not expecting is I think it's a scene later there at home. And Lucy is having a conversation with her mother about Cecil and about her relationship with him. And it becomes very clear that Lucy's mom does not like Cecil. Mm. And I was not expecting that. Cause you know, yeah, it's kind of subverts your expectations. It, it absolutely subverts what you would expect here because you would think that, that her mom would be like, well, yes, he's rich. He's, yeah. you know, we're we're gentry. He's gentry or whatever. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is what you do. You marry the rich, uh, wealthy, um, educated guy. Um, but she does not like him. She she finds him obnoxious as well and, and thinks he's not a good match for her. Uh, and she's pushing forward regardless of her mom tell you know making it clear that she thinks this is not a good match and i really i really liked that i thought that was interesting i wouldn't know if it was in the book yeah it is um when they get engaged her mom is initially pleased because cecil is rich and that means that he can provide well for lucy um but then almost immediately she's like oh wait <laughs> he's, <laughs> oh, he's an the worst hat. he's the worst he's the worst yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. I like I said, I was not expecting that, and I I really enjoyed it, and, and especially particularly interesting. This this uh, Ian Forster guy, he's a man ahead of his time, huh? <laughs> um, so uh, I mean, it's 1907. It wasn't like the 1400s, but still, <laughs> still, we then get a scene uh, where they all come together to play tennis, and 
after they play tennis, uh, Cecil's there, uh, George is there, uh, her brother and Lucy. They're all playing tennis together. And after they play tennis, I believe Cecil is reading or somebody's reading Miss Lavish's latest book. Mm. Um, and they realize, oh, that we met her in Italy or whatever. And then uh, Cecil starts reading one of the scenes and they're like, he's like making fun of it and how ridiculous it is or whatever and how like you know overwrought it is or whatever and he starts reading it and he reads out the scene that is literally like a word for word description of when george kissed lucy in italy uh and they both become well lucy becomes very uh abashed and uh she's like ah and it, mm-hmm. yeah blows up to some extent and then she becomes very upset with charlotte obviously because she knows the only person who could have Known about that and told uh, Miss Lavish was Charlotte, and they swore not to tell anybody. So clearly, Charlotte broke that promise. Um, does that all happen in the book? Because I thought that was a fun scene. Yes, all of that is from the book, um, and that is the impetus that causes Lucy to send away both George and Cecil. Yeah, because she gets mad at George. Like they kiss yeah. real quick, but then she's like, "Ah, you got to get out of here." And then um, she also then realizes her feelings and that she can't marry Cecil and Mm-mm. kicks him out. A marvelous decision. Yes. Uh, and at this point, after this scene, and, and with how much I had laughed throughout the course of the film, which I was not expecting, I was like, this is just a romantic comedy. Mm. This movie, like, it's not labeled that, like, on IMDb or anywhere. It's just labeled, like, a romance or whatever. But I was like, this is a romantic comedy. And I wanted to know if you felt like the book was as much. I mean, now, I would say probably based on the fact that most of the lines that I laughed at the most almost verbatim have come from the book, but I wanted to know if in your experience reading the book, if you felt like the book was also like basically a romantic comedy, although that wouldn't be the words they would use to describe it at the time. But do you think it would fit into what we would currently in the modern day classify romantic comedy as? Uh, Yeah. uh, I mean, Forrester is, he's basically making fun of the British insistence and hangups on always being proper. And that lends itself really well to the modern concept of a romantic comedy. Yeah. And and I think there is obviously a fine line because, you know, something like Pride and Prejudice mm-hmm. also has quite a few comedic scenes, shall we say. Yeah. But I would not say that that film and maybe it's just because the sense of humor in this just jives with me really well. <laughs> but like, I don't think I would necessarily call Pride and Prejudice a romantic comedy. I would I would be more apt to call the book a romantic comedy than I would the film version okay. that we watched for this. Yeah, the 2003 yeah. one or 2005, whatever. 2005, yeah, 6, yeah. Whatever, yeah. Um okay, but yeah. I mean and and it is. It's interesting because it's a very fine distinction because there's tons of scenes mm-hmm. in that film that are you know, comedic, but there's something about the 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 construction of the narrative in this yeah. one that feels like you could just copy paste it to a modern film and it would be a completely i don't want to say bog standard romantic comedy because that sounds like it's denigrating it but like mm-hmm. a, like nobody would bat an eye at the, the the narrative beats being translated to the modern day and like the jokes and stuff if you just transpose the setting this is just like and put like ryan reynolds and, and whoever in it it's just like a romantic comedy um whereas i again i don't quite feel the same way about something like pride and prejudice um and i just thought that was an interesting that i i don't know yeah i thought i had a note in here about austin hang on 
Actually, not Ryan Reynolds. Sorry, Timothy mm. Chalamet would play George. Yes, <laughs> sorry, Timothy Chalamet would um, play George. But yeah, I really thought I had a note in here about Austin, um, because the, yeah, it's it's a manner satire. Yeah, the novel, um, and so is so is Austin. That's what she wrote, by and large. Right. Yeah, and that and that makes sense. I don't know. Again, it's just something about, and I think part part of it too is the the like super on the nose like arch characters like mm-hmm. cecil being as much of a caricature of a <laughs> a pompous a jerk that he is yeah and george being kind of as much of a character caricature of the romantic that he is where something like pride and prejudice and I'm, i mean keep going back to that because it's the one we've done most recently that i have the best memory of um whereas like in that i, I don't feel like we have as archetypical romantic comedy characters Mm -hmm. as we do in this right yeah in this we have the very clear setup of like the the heroine who's entwined with the man who's completely Completely wrong wrong for her her, yeah um and then the other man who's completely right for her yes and we get bits of that from um like pride and prejudice like you know with what's his name the yeah uh, but it's not it just feels it doesn't it's again this is structured so clearly like a romantic comedy it was just i was just like holy cow Anyways, apparently uh, he wrote the I was blueprint. Like, Ian Forster like really did create <laughs> the romantic com- comedy. It's it's pretty. Uh, that's probably not true. Somebody no, would be like, actually, there was this person before like Shakespeare existed or whatever. Like I whatever. Yeah. I get it. I'm just saying. Again, it, it it's uh it was very striking to me. Uh, so then we get to uh the big quote that I I paraphrased because it was too long to include in our opening quote here, um and it's beautiful and I wanted to know if it came from the book and I'm just going to read it real quick um, because this is uh, George. She basically is telling George to go or he comes in to confront her about how Lucy about how Cecil isn't right for her. Mm. And George says to her, he's the sort who can't know anyone intimately, least of all a woman. He doesn't know what a woman is. He wants you for a possession, something to look at like a painting or an ivory box, something to own and to display. He doesn't want you to be real and to think and to live He doesn't love you, but I love you. I want you to have your own thoughts and ideas and feelings, even when I hold you in my arms. Great speech, George. Well done. Kudos. Uh, Is that from the book? Oh, I love that quote. Um, It it is. Uh, The movie makes uh, uh, quite a few cuts and some changes that I think elevate it. Okay. But I'm going to read from the book. Okay. Okay, so we're starting with a line of dialogue from George. Have you ever talked to Vi's without feeling tired? I can scarcely discuss, no, but have you ever? He is the sort who are all right so long as they keep to things, books, pictures, but kill when they come to people. That's why I'll speak out through all this muddle even now. It's shocking enough to lose you in any case, but generally a man must deny himself joy, and I would have held back if your Cecil had been a different person. I would never have let myself go. But when I first saw him in the National Gallery, when he winced because my father mispronounced the names of great painters, then he brings us here, and we find it is to play some silly trick on a kind neighbor. That is all. That, that is this man all over, playing tricks on people on the most sacred form of life that he can find. Next, I meet you together and find him protecting and teaching you and your mother to be shocked, when it was for you to settle whether you were shocked or no. Cecil all over again. 
He daren't let a woman decide. He's the type who's kept Europe back for a thousand years. Every moment of his life, he's forming you, telling you what's charming or amusing or ladylike, telling you what a man thinks womanly, and you, you of all women, listen to his voice instead of your own. So it was at the rectory when I met you both again, so it has been this whole afternoon. Therefore, not therefore I kissed you, because the book made me do that, and I wish to goodness I had more self-control. I'm not ashamed, I don't apologize, but it has frightened you, and you may not have noticed that I love you. Or would you have told me to go, and dealt with a tremendous thing so lightly? But therefore, therefore, I settled to fight him. Lucy thought of a very good remark. You say Mr. Vias wants me to listen to him, Mr. Emerson. Pardon me for suggesting that you have caught the habit. And he took the shoddy reproof and touched it into immortality. He said, yes, I have, and sank down as if suddenly weary. I'm the same kind of brute at bottom. This desire to govern a woman, it lies very deep, and men and women must fight it together before they shall enter the garden. But I do love you, surely in a better way than he does, he thought. Yes, really in a better way. I want you to have your own thoughts even when I hold you in my arms. So actually almost none of the dialogue come other than the last line. At least from what I could tell here. The first half of it is taken from something he says and expanded on. Because he does say he's the sort who are all right so long as they can keep to things, books, pictures, but they kill when it comes to people. So that's, he's the sort who can't know anyone intimately, right. least of all a woman who I mean, doesn't know what a woman is. Yes. I, yeah. Very, I, none of those words are in. <laughs> I, I, when, you, when you say subtly changed and made cuts, I assumed like this was going to be spread out throughout that. And it really isn't other than the final part. Um, but I love you and I want to have your own thoughts and ideas and feelings. Even when I hold you in your arms, like that part is in the book, the rest of this, they got the, the gist of it, mm -hmm. the feel of it. And then it, it, but this is wholly the creation of the screenwriters. I would argue like the words we, he says are essentially. Yes. Okay. And that's what I was asking when I read the quote, I was wondering, are these words? Cause so many other of the quotes have been, border essentially verbatim from the book you know what i mean like right my point is that i can see where the screenwriters took what he said in the book and said okay here's what we do to expand and improve this I, is my point yes absolutely i i interpreted what you were saying as that the movie basically just edited down what he said or mm -hmm. like what was in the book whereas that is not the case it is more of a taking the feel of it and doing their own thing with it and then keeping like the end of it. Basically, I think we're just talking about different things, but I, I, again, I just interpreted what you said initially differently than I think what you meant, obviously, but I think they're both very, cause there was lots of moments in that that I thought were great. That I was like, Ooh, I wish that had been in the movie. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely parts of that that I thought were, it's all very good. I guess, again, I, I was more asking this Do these words, <laughs> were they written by Ian Forrester? These words were not written by Ian Forrester barring the last, couple sentences the last sentence or two fair when i put a quote a direct quote in the notes that's what i'm asking i'm not asking like is the general feel of this <laughs> from the book i'm asking were these words written by ian forrester and then put in the film or did our screenwriter write these words based on something 
You know what I mean? The second one. Yes. Okay. Uh, That's all I was asking. So, okay. After this all goes down, I think Charlotte might be in the room for this. Yeah, she's in the room with them. And after this all goes down, uh, George has now left. She tells George he has to leave or whatever. He 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 kind of storms out. And then as Lucy is going to leave, she's very upset. Um, Charlotte is like apologizing for telling Miss Lavish or whatever. Uh, and she says <laughs> to Lucy as Lucy is leaving, I shall never forgive myself. And Lucy responds by saying, you always say that, Charlotte, but you always do forgive yourself. <laughs> and I... Woo! Got me good. And I wanted to know if that came from the book. You know, I looked and looked because I thought I remembered something similar to this, but I could not find this line. So we're going to call it a brilliant movie edition. (laughs) Okay. It's uh, got me so good. Um, So then uh, I mentioned this earlier about how Cecil Cecil is not. Doesn't. As obnoxious and as terrible as he is, he is a victim of his own upbringing and he isn't like an evil person per se. And this is another big moment of that is that at the end when she breaks off the engagement, um, he actually in the film takes it pretty well. Yeah. He just accepts it. Let's her go. And she even says, thank you for taking this so well. (laughs) He puts his shoes on and moves on with his life. And I just, again, it reinforces the fact that he's not a complete asshole. He's just a bit of an unself-aware buffoon. And I wanted to know if his reaction to her breaking off the um, engagement was the same in the book. Because I really enjoyed that. Again, it's it's a bit of a... It's a bit of a subversion of what you would expect his character to do in that moment. Again, being the big obnoxious jerk that he is you expect him to snap and be like how dare you you can't Mm -hmm. leave me and like try to hit her or like something you just expect him to like not be able to take that and to react horribly to it and he doesn't he reacts literally as good as you could expect somebody to react to that and i thought that was really interesting choice for his character again reinforcing my assessment of his or our assessment of his character uh and yeah does it come from the book it does um if there is one thing that I'll give Cecil, he takes his dumping like an absolute champ. Um, and and not just that he reacts well to it, but that he like hears what she has to say and then is like, oh, my God, I didn't realize I was being that way. I, yeah. I've yeah. never thought about myself yeah. like that. He like, yeah. And you know what? He has a reckoning. <laughs> I, I would read a story where Cecil gets like a Mr. Darcy-esque yeah. character yeah. arc and becomes a great guy. That'd be, that'd be great. That'd be Daniel Day-Lewis should come out of retirement <laughs> and do that as like older Cecil. Yes. Like, you know, Cecil in his 60s or whatever who finally <laughs> has learned to be a good guy. That'd be great. Be delightful. Uh, we get this. There's a little moment. I just want to know if it comes from the book because I thought it was adorable. Where it, it's the uh, Lucy's younger sister, and they're all. No, it's, um, oh, is it not Lucy's younger? It's sister? this is not explained in the movie because it's not important. Okay. Um, it's Mr. Beeb's niece who's staying with them because there's been like some kind of illness. Outbreak. Oh, okay. I I thought I forget it was, like, what her the illness was. Okay. Again, the the conceit with which she is there is not super important. But no. That's who that character Anyways, is. So there's this young girl who uh, there and she's at their house, and um, this is after the breakup and everything. And Beeb is there and with her, and they're kind of chit chatting. And the little girl turns to him and says, "Everyone's so horrid today. Let's go out to tea." 
And I was like, this little girl's got it all figured out already. <laughs> She's like, this, the vibes are off. Let's go have tea. <laughs> and I was just really, I thought that was a delightful little scene. And I wanted to know if that came from the book. Uh, not that exact line. She does complain. She says, like, this house is not at all what it was yesterday or something like that. Um, and then they do go out to tea. But she does not say that exact line. Uh, final question. I want to know if at the end, and I, I had a hard time interpreting exactly what was going on in the film here, um, but because I, I thought they were going to the shops in the carriage and then she walks into a house and I was very, I, anyways, doesn't really matter because it all works out. And I, I just was a little confused at where, what exactly was transpiring. Um, but again, I was able to sort it out by the end, at least the what mattered of it. But she walks in and in this house, I guess she's, meeting Char I don't know who she again I did not understand what was going they're on they're at the the rectory where Mr. Beeb lives okay um and she's there to they're picking up Charlotte so she goes in to find Lucy goes in to find Charlotte okay I because I just I thought she said like I swear when they were going that um Lucy's mom says take us to the shops or something like that to the carriage driver mm -hmm. and then I thought they were stopping at like you know like the general because you see a sign that was like the general store or something. And then it cuts from that to, to Lucy walking into this living room. And I was just very confused at where we were again. I was, it didn't really matter. I just, I was like, what is going on? Anyways, she walks in and, um, Mr. Emerson is there with Charlotte and Charlotte, uh, leaves. And Mr. Emerson is able to talk to Lucy and basically make a, a, a plea for his son, essentially kind of. And, Basically, what I got out of this, assuming I interpreted it correctly, which I'm not sure that I did, is that Charlotte kind of makes amends here by helping play matchmaker by getting Lucy to talk to Mr. Emerson, mm -hmm. who is then able to push them together, basically. Yeah. And I wanted to know if that is what happens in the book, if Charlotte does kind of makes that happen. Yeah, it's it's implied that that's what she she did in the book but the movie makes it way more obvious so in the book we don't see charlotte talk to mr emerson which we do in the movie um and then much of what he says to charlotte in the movie he actually says to lucy in the book and then like much later on when she's with george we find out that charlotte was actually there at the house and just didn't stop lucy from going in to see and talk to Mr. Emerson. And I prefer the movie's version. You said here much of what he says to Charlotte in the movie, he says to Lucy in the book. Yes. He says most of that stuff to Lucy, doesn't he? But he does. He has a conversation with Charlotte. Yeah, first. he did. OK, but and I thought it was only a few words before Lucy walked into. The I mean, they, they, it's, I could just be misremembering. They at I've, least he, he says a little bit to her, at least, because okay. I remember specifically how, like there's the lines are similar. OK, but he doesn't we don't see him talk to Charlotte in the book. So he says it to Lucy. OK, I got you. Yeah. OK, fair enough. All right. Cool. Those are all of my questions. I my lost in adaptations were kind of mixed in with that. So uh, that's all I got. It's time to find out what Katie thought was better in the book. You like to read? Oh, yes. I love to read. What do you like to read? Everything. Uh, so Mr. Beeb has a line um, early on when they're in Italy while Lucy is playing the piano. 
because uh, Lucy's a great piano player. Yes. Um, and we both kind of paused and like we're like, oh, it's a little creepy. <laughs> um, I read this one note, and I, I have so much to talk about with this. So go, yeah, sorry. <laughs> he he says to Lucy after she plays the piano, uh, "If Miss Honeychurch ever takes to live as she plays, it will be very exciting." And that line is from the book. Okay. But it's something that Mr. Beeb just thinks to himself. Right. And now I understand that we wanted to work that line in. It's a good line. But we would have had to give him like an inner monologue right, or a voiceover. We, we, we don't want to do that. But also having him say it directly to her was kind of creepy. But um, then I'm not sure if that would be more or less creepy than having him like say it to somebody else. But then again, he's also a little bit of a creep, so maybe it works. Okay, so by the end of the film, he's didn't come across as a creep to me at all. Mm -hmm. In this first scene, I didn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the relationship. I didn't know if he was trying. Because to me, in the film, when that line came across, we both turned and I said, well, that's a good line. Seems kind of skeevy coming from him, but that's a, that's a good pickup line. But... I, I think because in the context of the film at that point, I didn't know what who he was or what his aims were like. You know, yeah. I didn't know if he was trying to court her or what. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know who he was. Um, I think if I rewatched it, that line may not come across as weird to me knowing who he is mm -hmm. now. You know what I mean? And I think it was just a matter of like in that moment, I thought he was like trying to hit on her. And I don't think because when you read that line coming from him as the character I know him, or at least that he seems to be from the rest of the film, I can see reading that line and him saying it to her as being totally normal and being like a, I, I don't even know the way to put it, but it's not remotely like creepy or weird or like, he's just kind of like remarking on how she plays piano with such like vivacity or whatever that, if she were to live life the same way, she would be uh, whatever he says. Um, I can't even remember now. Uh, it will be very exciting. And it, again, you can interpret that in like a weird kind of like sexual creepy way. But I don't again. And that was how I took it initially. But knowing his character now, it doesn't read that way to me at all. Like I've, I see it as him just being like. Kind of gently trying to coax her outside of her comfort zone in terms of like pursuing life or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and maybe 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 creep to describe him is too strong of a word. He's minorly off-putting to me, not so much in the movie, but in the book. There there's something that was cut later on that I'll oh, talk okay. about <laughs> better in the and movie. And that's fair. And if there's something, yeah, I, I'm just talking about in the film, he seems like a perfectly affable, nice mm. guy, yeah. you know, the local reverend or whatever who's yeah, but and and he and somewhat philosophical, like he seems yeah. Again, as it goes on, like he seems not like a typical like like the old uh, Anglican guy we see at the beginning who's like obnoxious and whatever. Like he he doesn't see he seems like a more progressive, like kind of cool mm -hmm. <laughs> chaplain or whatever, <laughs> reverend or whatever. I don't know. I just. And so, yeah, that line through the lens of seeing his whole character in the film, I interpreted very differently. But in the moment, I was like, uh, yeah, it's interesting, though. And so. Yeah, I don't know. I, I could see it being in his head. I don't know if that helps it in the book, in my mind, like him mm -hmm. thinking that to himself. If I didn't know 
<laughs> like if if in the film we had gotten a voiceover and he had thought that to himself, I think that might have been been creepier to me than so? him saying it to her. <laughs> I don't know. I just yeah. Anyways, sorry. Go on. A little thing that we find out in the book is that uh, in Miss Lavish's novel, she has named her main character after herself. That tracks. Yes, it does. <laughs> Uh, another thing that gets left out. Behold um, my foresight. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of that scene, um, when they're on the when they're in the Italian countryside, and uh, the the foresight that Miss Lavish had was she brought Macintosh squares, which are, are small blankets. Yeah, I was, think in the film it just looks like yeah. she has a blanket. I'm I don't not. Know, yeah. I'm not sure if they're made with a special fabric or what, but yeah, they're for sitting on. Um, and she has two of them. And Charlotte, we see a little bit of this in the movie. Like initially insists that Lucy should have the other square, and then like sits down and is like, <coughs> "No, no, no! Don't worry about me." Oh, doing the yeah. Like woe the is thing. me, yeah. Yeah. Uh but what the what we don't find out in the movie is that she immediately sits down and she picks like the muddiest, wettest spot <laughs> to sit herself down in. Well yeah. So she can martyr herself even more. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh so there's um uh, right after Lucy leaves those two, she's gonna go she wants to go find Mr. Beeb. Um and so she goes to the driver and she doesn't speak much Italian. He doesn't speak much English. She can't remember. She's trying to ask them where they are, but she can't remember the word for like reverend or priest yeah. or whatever. So she asks the driver to take her to the good man. <laughs> trying to like cobble her way there. Yeah. And instead the driver takes her to George, which I Oh, oh, that's delightful. It's so cute. That's very cute. Yeah, that would have been good. I, I'm sad we missed that. That would have been good. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't think the movie mentioned this. I might have missed it because there was a little bit of dialogue between uh, Miss Honey or Mrs. Honeychurch and Freddie that I, I might have just missed this. But I don't think the movie mentions that when Lucy accepts Cecil's proposal, it's actually his third proposal yeah I and don't, she rejected him the first two times i don't recall that either but there is a lot of little back yeah. and forth throughout those conversations that we, while we're taking notes we could easily yeah it's, have it's not always easy to follow but I, I don't i also do not remember that being mentioned so cecil <laughs> glutton for punishment yeah i don't know why you would propose to someone even a second time <sighs> Nope. But you but do, that, that's you do back you, then. Bro. And he's entitled like it. Yeah. It yeah, I, I guess. Um, and my last note for better in the book is uh, just prose. Yeah. Um, and as you've heard, a lot of the lines are verbatim or very close to verbatim, like a lot of the stuff that you asked about. But uh, I think Forster. I think he should be far more widely read than he is I, over here. Absolutely. As soon as watching this film and learning how much of it you yeah. know, comes from the book, I was like, I need to read yeah. some of these books like this. Yeah, this I, stuff yes. right I, he alley. should be far more widely read over here than he is. Um, but I, I think in general, he should be as widely quoted as authors like Thoreau and Emerson and Dickens, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just a little excerpt. I just, I picked one. It was hard to pick one. It is obvious enough for the reader to conclude she loves young Emerson. A reader in Lucy's place would not find it obvious. 
Life is easy to chronicle, but bewildering to practice. Mm-hmm. Life is easy to chronicle, but bewildering to yes. practice. That should be on a million little calligraphy yes. graphics right? with flowers all over Pinterest. Yeah. It's, Come on. It, it, I, I'm amazed that it's not, you know, the live, love, laugh. Yes. Or, yeah. Because it, it is. It is. I would put that on a pillow. As, you know, as as pithy as it is, it's it, it rings true in a way that is it, it's one of those little quotes that is you read it and it rings so true in mm-hmm. so few words that you're like damn <laughs> yeah uh, yes and, and look his, at you writing <laughs> his, his writing is very like that it's it's kind of pithy and it's a lot of it is very funny but it does have that quality that just like rings very true in your soul yeah yeah absolutely yeah all right let's talk now about what katie thought was better in the movie my life has taught me one Lesson, Hugo, not the one I thought it would. Happy endings only happen in the movies. I loved the bit um, in the church in Italy where we cut over to George and he's like kneeling and like putting on a show to get the the Italian guy to leave him alone. I missed this. I must have been taking a note. There's so when Lucy goes into the church, we see this like Italian guy come up to her, and I'm not yeah. really sure who he's supposed to be. Like if he's a guide or or somebody some, at the church, yeah, like, or asking somebody for like alms or yeah, something, or, or somebody yeah. selling something. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I know. But he kind of like hounds her. I remember that because she's like, I don't speak Italian yeah. or whatever. And then when she's talking to. Um, Mr. Emerson, we cut over to George, and the same guy is like hounding him. So George starts doing this like very elaborate, like oh. kneeling and prostrating himself yeah. routine. It's like you're interrupting my very yeah. devout <laughs> moment to, like, here. Yeah, to yeah. get this guy to leave him alone. That's good stuff. Yeah. The the movie made um, a change that I thought worked really well. Uh, so what happens in the book is that Lucy actually goes to that church initially with Miss Lavish. And then Miss Lavish ends up like abandoning her. Um, and then the the part with the guy getting stabbed happens a little bit later on a different outing. Um, but in the movie, we see that Lucy goes to the church by herself, and then the stabbing is like immediately after that, yeah, she after like she leaves the church. Yeah. Um, and we see that Charlotte has gone off with Miss Lavish. Yeah. And I think that works really well, not just because we're kind of like concisely cutting and smushing things together. Um, but I also think it works well for introducing Charlotte and Miss Lavish's friendship. Yes, I agree. I think I remember the, um, the, the line I, I, I miss, I, I misquoted where the, I remember now the, um, the American rare, uh, mm-hmm. the good American, a rare type or whatever. It's, it's those two. It's Charlotte and, um, Oh yeah, I think you're right. They're walking yeah. through the streets in Italy and they're talking about somebody. And mm-hmm. one of them, I can't remember who, says, oh, yeah, it was a, uh, a good American or whatever, a rare breed or something like that. It's them. I just didn't want to, you know, <laughs> <laughs> incorrectly uh, attribute that quote. So The movie drops uh, this kind of odd little plot point. Mr. Eager, the, the other reverend in Italy, the very, like, uh, yeah, the old, yeah, the the old one. Yeah, the older Anglican guy. Very, uh stick up his butt yeah guy uh says he doesn't like mr emerson and he tells lucy at one point that mr emerson murdered his wife in the sight of god and far too little is made of that accusation right on the whole um 
And then later on at the very end when she's talking to Mr. Emerson, we find out what happened was that they had raised George without religion. They didn't get him baptized. And then he got sick. And Mrs. Emerson was like consumed with guilt that her son was going to die without having been baptized. Uh, okay. um, and then she ended up dying and like like died full of fear and like anxiety about uh like the afterlife right. and so Mr. Eager was just being very melodramatic. Right. But it also like didn't really make sense and didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. So I was glad that the movie cut it. I think cutting that makes sense. It does. It kind of it muddies stuff uh, in a way. Yeah. Like I said, it would take a lot of work, and it wouldn't. Yeah. It, it muddies Emerson's character in a way that feels unnecessary because mm -hmm. again, it does. It's like where does that go? I mean, without knowing the whole context, there might be some. But yeah, it, it does feel again like it maybe like not a good choice to to cut. That. Yes. I really loved uh, George doing his creed in yes. the Italian countryside. S climbing He's that just tree. just climbing a tree and just screaming, beauty, yeah. truth, yeah, A very dead joy. poet society moment. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then falling out of the tree. Yeah, it's great. It's delightful. I liked that we saw Charlotte more forcefully separate Lucy and George before they leave Florence. So in the in the book, Lucy just thinks about going out to talk to George, but then she hears Charlotte start to talk to him, and she's like, "Oh, ne never mind." Yeah. Um, whereas in the movie, we actually see her come out of the room and like see her face when she sees right. him, and then Charlotte's like, "Get back inside." Get out of here. Yeah. Uh, so I preferred the movie's version of that. Okay. I really loved the little scene where Charlotte was riding in the cab with George on his bicycle behind them. Like, <laughs> what? I don't remember this. When she gets off the train, she's coming to visit the honey churches, and she gets off the train and she's gotten off at the wrong stop. So she has to take a little, like, a cab yeah. to their house. And then she meets George in the train station, and he's got his bike. Yes. And then she's sitting on the back of his cab, and he's just like, tootily dooting along on the bike behind them and she's very uncomfortable <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. entire time yeah yeah okay i do remember that yeah. Now. yeah yeah it's just it's a very small scene but it's very funny yeah uh i loved um <laughs> the cut went to cecil frantically waving away a bug yes or he's outside he's like, yeah his arms going crazy yeah. like spilling his tea yeah that's good. Very good comedic moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I gotta say, Daniel Day Lewis should have done more comedy. I don't know yes. why. Like he really leaned <laughs> into like the brooding, you know, Daniel Day Lewis characters. And I, I feel like we really missed out on <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis, the comedian. I don't know. Uh, so at the very end, when Lucy is planning to go to Greece with the Miss Allens. She, they go to meet them and they don't tell them that the engagement has been broken off because that would be embarrassing um, and improper. And uh, and the Miss Allens, so they're talking all about like Cecil and the wedding and blah, yes. blah, blah. Yeah. And then after Lucy and Mrs. Honeychurch leave, yeah. um, one of them is like, she just doesn't look She's like, like uh, she, something happened. They yeah. must have, because she doesn't something look happened. like a bride. She doesn't look like a bride to be. And yeah. the other one, because they're spinsters, yes. the other the other sister's like, how should a bride to be look according to your great <laughs> wisdom and experience? Just classic just, sister roast. Right. Just getting them. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. If my sister and I were old spinsters, I would say things like that to her. <laughs> okay, so the thing about Mr. Beeb. Um, Mr. Beeb, totally fine character most of the way through the book. And then at the end, his character did an about face for me. I was okay. like, this is weird. I'm not sure what we're trying to say here, E.M. Forster, but this is weird. Uh, so when he first hears that Lucy has broken off the engagement to Cecil, he's pleased, partly because he doesn't think they're good for each other. Right. As no one does. Right. Um, but also partly because he believes so strongly in celibacy that he's pleased to hear that they've broken off their marriage because it means that now they're both going to be celibate longer. Okay. And then when she marries George, he's mad about that. Right. I think that you could definitely, I mean, there's a couple ways to read that. I think the way that comes to mind most to me is that, um, without having read it, obviously, is uh, obviously throughout this, we get fairly pointed critiques of religion by our some of our yes, our, our, our protagonists, shall we say, with uh, Mr. Emerson and George um, and others to some extent. But and I, I wonder if that is a even though overall we kind of like Mr. Beeb. Mm -hmm. That could be like because we have the we have the the reverend the I'm using whatever he is the the old the Anglican guy yeah. from the beginning. Um, we have him as sort of an example of like the worst aspect of, or at least to some extent. Yeah, at least some of the worst aspects. Some of the so. worst aspects of like organized religion or whatever, and then we have Mister Beeb as like more of a again slightly more progressive, seemingly mm -hmm. at least in the film. Um, He's a very palatable, congenial. congenial guy who's who's who again very personable. Seems to really care about people, and it, it doesn't seem like he takes the whole religion thing as seriously as this other guy. Um, but I think you could make the argument that what Ian Forster's doing there is saying, but even still, even in this more congenial, um, you know, progressive, mm -hmm. likable version of Christianity, there is still this. At at its core, there's this kernel of mm. of of a thing that is, you know, not yeah, it's not good. Like it, it's yeah, it's like even in this character that we overall like, he still has these these somewhere in there. He has these views um, that are you know very much um, influenced or or directly um, a, a result of his Christianity that when we look at it go ah, that's we don't like yeah, that why don't. why are you why do you why and, yeah and and i think also it, it's it's also a, a layer to it of um sort of reflection on mr b being um jealous to some extent i think you could mm, read it as yeah. he's he sees this and he goes how you know he's he's like upset that she's not going to be celibate they're not going to be celibate anymore and then happy when they're when they call off the wedding because, Oh, she'll remain celibate and that's good. That's what I do. That's what the godly people do. Yeah. And, and there's like a jealousy buried deep down in there somewhere where he, he doesn't want her, his friend or whatever, um, you know, to, to have sex because he can't or doesn't want to or whatever. Um, and, and is, I don't know. I think there's some yeah. layers to it that I think are interesting. And I think it all kind of peels back to a, 
yeah, and critique of r- and definite, religion. And there's definite critique of both religion and just like the societal yeah. um, <clears throat> preoccupation with what other people are doing on their private time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Throughout the novel. Which is often a result of yes or at least in the in in the specific regard to like sexuality and stuff is often influenced by religion yes doesn't not always but uh, there are plenty of places it comes from and it it, it can manifest (laughs) completely secularly but i think that is it sounds to me again from mr emerson as a character being the character he is and and so clearly being a voice of the author it feels like and him being as pointed of a, a critic of religion as he is, I feel like we're we're definitely getting E.M. Forster's opinions there. And so I think that's what again, that's what it would feel like to me. Yeah. Is even this character that you like that is, you know, the a religious character that is not as obnoxious as these other religious characters in this book, still at its core, there is something there potentially that Yeah. Well, is, it was effective for me. <laughs> the whole book i was like mr beeb fine yeah fine got to that part and i was like Bleh. yeah yeah i don't know yeah it's interesting i think it's, inter- it's really interesting i think there's a lot there could be a lot more to discuss with that but anyways all right it's time to find out what katie thought the movie nailed As I expected, practically perfect in every way. Well, the movie nailed a lot of things. This is a very faithful adaptation. Mm-hmm. On the it sounds, yeah, it sounded like it. Uh, I'm just gonna, you as per usual, run through my non-exhaustive list of things that I noted while we were watching the film. Uh, the whole scene where Mr. Emerson was insisting that they should have the rooms, uh, Charlotte being extremely uncomfortable about it. Uh, naturally, Dame Maggie Smith nails Charlotte Bartlett. Oh, yeah. To a T. Yeah, she's great. Both yeah. the dames in this movie. Are you yes. kidding me? You get yes. two of them. <laughs> this is a hell of a cast yeah. in this film. Is Daniel Day-Lewis knighted or he's American? I think he's is is he he? American. I don't know. I Let me look. Anyways, continue. Sorry. <laughs> I love uh, Lucy's line in the church to Mr. Emerson. She's le- She's like, I'm thoroughly happy and having a splendid time with the most like uh, frowny face you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Uh, but just he is British and he is knighted. So we had ah. two dames and a sir in this. Excellent. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, George throwing her photographs in the river because they were covered in blood and he didn't know what else to do with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his line to her, I don't, something's happened to me and to you. Yeah. The thing that was happening love yep it was love uh the reverend uh mr eager has a line while they're in the carriages and it's raining um i don't have the exact line but it's do you suppose all of this was called into existence <laughs> to extinguish yeah. you or me and then immediately besides the only thing that would attract the lightning is the knives and they're in the other carriage yeah. so we're fine i know i thought that was great <laughs> that was so good um Maggie Smith's portrayal of Charlotte is only challenged by Daniel Day-Lewis's portrayal of Cecil Mm -hmm. for book-to-film accuracy. Uh, Cecil's line about, uh, I have no profession, I dare say it is an example of my decadence. I kind of loved, again, that that first couple lines with him, I was like, I kind of like it. I I liked that line. I don't know. It felt, yeah, that was a good line. I enjoyed it. 
But that and that is that's exactly how you're supposed to feel with Cecil though. Yeah. Like initially you're like, ah, uh, maybe. Yeah. And then you're like, no. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> no. no, no. Yeah. Um, the scene where Cecil is showing off Lucy to his society friends in London, where he's like having her play piano for them yeah. and like looking around. Yeah, like, like, oh, you guys see this? this <laughs> see this? Lady, Look right? at every, yeah, everyone yeah, admire yeah, her. Yeah, admire my property. Thank you. Thank you. And then the entire gross conversation between him and his mother, where his mother's like, she's losing the honey church taint. Make her one of us. Oh, I missed that. Oh, it's a really gross conversation. That, yeah. Okay. Um, and then the, they're going to bed, and Cecil says to her, "So you do love me, little thing?" Uh, and I was like, Bleh. "Yeah, <laughs> gross." I don't know if you caught this because they showed it just real quick in the movie, but when the Emersons are moving into the cottage, we see written on their wardrobe, "Mistrust all enterprises that require new clothes." I did not see that. Good stuff. <laughs> Whoa, boy. Is that from the book? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. There. Yep. Yeah. This, <laughs> this motherfucker. <laughs> I think we should put that on our closet. Yeah. No, that's good. The whole scene with. I don't know. Like, we say that as people who buy a lot of costumes I, yes, and clothes. I, I do. In I the do spirit of how it's clothes. meant, that does not mean like if you're going to a Ren fair, don't. That means like if. If you're getting yeah. a like in 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 business enterprises, yes. like it's it's very much a like a proletariat like type yeah. of um common man. You shouldn't need to buy a, yes. a brand new outfit to go to a job to go interview. to a job or whatever. That's yeah. what uh, that's, that's clearly what that the implication there. But yeah, uh, the whole scene with Charlotte trying to make change and how like horrible and awkward it is. Mm hmm. Uh, Lucy's comment about Miss Lavish's book. I suppose one ought to read it if one's met her. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, I liked that line. Oh, yeah, that was good. Um, a little thing, but the change in the weather immediately after Lucy sends away both George and Cecil. Oh, it gets all stormy. Like, yeah, like the wind. It's it's in. very like an idyllic summer. Yeah. Before and then immediately after that, storms descend. Yeah. Um, I I don't know how long they had to wait for the weather to turn, but I appreciate it. Well, I mean, well, yeah, they had to wait for an overcast day, but I yeah. guarantee all the wind was just giant fans. But fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my last note is uh, Mr. Emerson's line to Lucy as she's trying to leave. Um, she says, I have to go. They trust me. And he says, why should they when you've deceived everyone, including yourself? Mm hmm. Very good. Very good. All right. We got a handful of odds and ends before we get to the final verdict. my first note here i feel like this is going to be a pretty accurate adaptation from what i recall of the movie because it had been quite a while since i'd seen the movie but then upon rereading the book i was like i think this is going to be one of those ones where a lot of it is very accurate and, and, it, it, and it was yeah uh i was stricken by and, and when watching the trailer uh how young helena <laughs> bottom carter is in this um, compared to every other role I've seen, I feel like mm -hmm. I, o I I I had never seen this movie, and I feel like I've only ever seen Helena Bonham Carter, like from the late '90s on. Yeah, where I, like I don't feel like I ever saw her from this movie to like 
till till until like a fight club or something like yeah i feel like the, those are my two touchdowns for helena bottom carter now so it's like her is a 19 year old and then her is like a 35 year old and i'm like is there did she act in the middle of those or what i don't know it's just um and then she's looked the exact same for the last like yeah. 30 years so yeah uh, it's just very striking and also wild throughout this film how perfect she would be if they had made Harry Potter in the 80s to play Hermione. Yeah. Like, I was like, she just, like, um, literally the picture of, with that hair and This just, movie fully started my obsession with Helena Bonham Carter's oh yeah. hair. Her hair is ridiculous I in this film. I love her hair. I want my hair to look <laughs> like her hair. I think I could do it. I think you could. I think I, think I have enough hair, and yeah. it's a similar enough texture. I think I could have... Would you mind if I had Helena Would Bonham I Carter hair? Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, don't. Don't do that. Um, also, I noticed, I realized this is one of the few times, if maybe not the first time, that I'd seen uh, the Dame Maggie Smith outside of Harry Potter. I don't know, because mm-hmm. uh, I've not watched Downton Abbey. I know she's in Downton Abbey. But. Trying to think. I feel like I've seen her in at least one other thing, but I can't think of what it is right now. But uh, yeah, Harry Potter is like the main thing that I know yeah, her from. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And like I said, I know she's in Downton Abbey, but I've never watched any Downton Abbey. So, um, but anyways, yeah, I was like, holy cow. I think, and, and it's it's so funny because this is like 30 years before and she almost looks the exact same. Yeah. Not the exact same, but it's, I, it's one of those things where kind of like Patrick Stewart, where like, Patrick Stewart in the 80s was like 40 and he looked 60, but then he (laughs) stayed looking 60 until he was 100. Like, I don't you know what I mean? Like Patrick Stewart in The Next Generation, I think he was he was way younger than I would have thought he was Mm -hmm. looking at him. Um, But he has looked like that forever. And it felt like the same thing here where she she was like 50 in this. But she looked to me a little older than 50. And part of that's the wardrobe and the hair and stuff. Right, like yeah, lots of that the stuff. styling. But she, she didn't look that much older in Harry Potter to me than she looks in this film, mm-hmm. which I thought was, uh, again, really interesting. I really did love uh, the severity of all the British faces in this movie. Mm. They're all, it, everybody's face is so British in it's this so, film. It's very British, very British They're film. so severe and dowdy <laughs> and, and brooding and angular. And I just, it, I couldn't get over how British everybody looked. They're on holiday at the beginning of this film, and the old British idea of holidays, and it might still be a thing, is so interesting to me, but I think it's particularly an older thing. And I'm not even informed enough on this to talk about it, but they seem to just, like, go stay somewhere for a couple months, and, like, it doesn't seem even like a vacation necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like it is, but it's also they just like go live somewhere for a while. Yeah, I mean, and to be fair, it used to take so long to travel. That's true that you would stay there. You, for yeah, quite you, a while. you couldn't just like pop somewhere right. for a week or, yeah, a weekend. Yeah, or a weekend. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, fair. If you traveled, you traveled. Right. It's just like you know, it just seems like they're kind of just going about. I mean, they're definitely like sightseeing and stuff, but it, it just, I don't know. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying we should do it again. <laughs> I'm saying we need to bring back British holidays. Um, maybe a little less like colonialized, but you know, <laughs> one of the other things that really struck me is that this film was made in 1985 and it felt like it was a much older film. To yes. Me. Yeah. The way it's shot, the, the, the lighting, um, the film stock, I think that yeah. it was shot on. Did it just feels like a movie from the sixties or seventies. Yeah. It felt like a movie from like the early seventies or mm-hmm. something, or not like not like a lot older. Obviously, it didn't feel like a movie from like the forties or something. 
Um, one, it's in color, but it it just it it didn't feel like a movie from 1985. Yeah. Um, in a way that I thought was well, I guess it depends. It just felt like a European movie, which I guess is part of it because it is. Uh, it's a British film, I guess, or well, Ivory's British, I'm pretty sure. But um, anyways, I just it just felt older than yeah. it actually is, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and the um the periodness of this film impresses me as yeah. well oh it's incredible which is it is what it won a lot of oscars for yeah. it was like art direction and costumes i believe yeah. was when i did it, the it looks to me an untrained person <laughs> very period accurate yeah. and that further impresses me because often when a period film was made in the 80s you can still tell that it was made in the 80s because everyone still has 80s hair right not in this but one. the maybe Helena Bonham Carter, maybe you think maybe she have kind of like she a lot of times has like that up to like the but and, and it but it works because in that era, like in the Edwardian era, they did wear their hair like big. That's what like I'm saying. That. Yeah, like I, to me, it felt again without like, knowing. What it I'm felt saying is, I me. think you could make an argument that she still has some type of like 80s ish styling to her hair, but I don't think it's inaccurate. Okay, yeah, I, I'll take your word for it. I don't know enough about hairstyles to, <laughs> to argue, but to me, enough nothing felt out of place at all. Yeah, like everything. I, yeah, I, yeah, it all felt. And again, it did win quite a few. I think most of its Oscars were for that kind of stuff, like mm-hmm. costume and 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 art art uh, design and whatnot. I will say too, another thing that I thought was interesting is like I felt throughout this film that I had just enough historical and literary knowledge to appreciate a lot of the like dialogue in this film. Mm-hmm. Like this movie does not hold your hand. It no. makes a lot of references, and I'm sure the book obviously is similar. Um, because it's just referencing stuff from the time. But like there was like there was like little jokes and asides. And there was one in particular. I think I wrote this note when they're in the church in Italy. And there's some line about the goths doing something. Yeah. Like, there was some line about the goths. And I, I know just enough. And, and I mean the bare minimum about like history and stuff to like for that stuff to like not be completely over my head. Yeah. And and it's like it's which again, I just thought was interesting. Is that you you have to really be meet the movie on its level cuz it's not there to like cater to to all audiences necessarily. Which I don't know if that's nice. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I, I think it's it is what it is. It's, it's just Yeah, it's six of one. I think we need both. Yeah kinds of art yes absolutely yeah absolutely absolutely but i was just i had that experience the whole time of like i think i kind of get that (laughs) reference like enough to like get it but not really like i don't know yeah i have to know uh speaking of the uh the stat or not speaking of but the in italy the stabbing scene Mm. they carry him over to the fountain and then shortly thereafter these dudes come out carrying a cart and i yeah. swear they're wearing like executioner. no they are i wrote the same note they all have like executioner hoods on they come out wheeling a death gurney yes and i was like i have <laughs> to know if in 1907 florence they had these dudes and i would assume <laughs> this is accurate i i, I have I, no reason to think it's not who came to collect the bodies of dead slash injured people because at that point like they didn't he was not dead i mean he might have been dead by the time they got there yeah but, like they took him over the fountain it seemed to be like they were trying to like you know help him in some way or do something where they they weren't for sure that he was dead and then again by the time they get there i think he's dead 
But uh, <laughs> but by the time when they called him, he wouldn't have been dead. So did yeah? Were they medics? Were I they don't know. were were executioner looking guys? Also, I just want to know. I don't know what was going on there. Thought it was fascinating. I don't know, and I don't even begin to know how to look that up. I don't either. So don't either. If, if somebody if, knows yeah. a, anything about uh, early twentieth century Italian history, let us know. <laughs> um. I will say one of the things that really striking to me uh, technically in this film is how obvious a lot of the ADR was, which Mm -hmm. now lots of movies, especially in the old days and even still use ADR, which ADR, if you don't know, stands for uh, there's conflicting reports on what it stands for. But I think it's automatic dialogue replacement or automated dialogue replacement or something like that. But basically it's where you record the dialogue in a sound booth after the filming and put that the, the sound from the actor's voices over the film so mm-hmm. you're not you don't have sound in the moment when you're recording the, the, the actual video or the film um the, the visual images you're seeing you add it after the fact um and very often and again tons of movies do tons of modern movies so many movies that you don't even realize this is happening it is happening all the time um but you but when it's done well you just don't even notice yeah when it's mixed in well and stuff but there was a handful of scenes in particular the scene where um him and uh, uh where where george and um lucy are sitting like by the side of that canal or the river yeah. and talking so clearly that was all adr and like not particularly well um and i thought that was really striking it almost felt like i was watching a foreign film that was dubbed in english and now mm. obviously the voices matched up because they were speaking english at the time but it was so noticeable uh, but it did not detract from the experience i thought because they did a good enough job delivering the adr yeah. That it felt like it works still. Yeah. And it wasn't the whole film. It was mainly those first couple scenes. There was a handful of those moments. And then later on, it, it got a little bit better. But anyways, uh, I thought another thing that was interesting, and I assume this is, comes from the book, is the sort of the contrast of the uh, messy Italian zest for life versus the British properness mm, mm-hmm. uh, is a big thing. Yes. Um, and in the film, they kind of boil it down along like ethnic lines. It it does feel like it's like the Italians and the yeah, oh, at least to some extent. But obviously, George and his father more more um fit more into the the quote unquote Italian right. side of that equation. But it's still applicable. I thought it was interesting, uh, kind of contrasting that and the way um, because I think that is true. And regardless of like ethnicity and stuff, there different cultures have different views of life pursuits and you know work yeah. versus play yes. versus whatever that's definitely a cultural thing um that can be developed and like proper behavior yeah and, and all that sort of stuff yeah which i again it's it's a cultural thing not like a racial or ethnic yes. thing which I, I i again the movie kind of highlights that in an interesting way mm-hmm. uh, there's this moment in this film that i thought had had to be inspiration for a, a scene from the mummy <laughs> there's this scene where after george kisses lucy I believe Charlotte is brushing her hair Mm -hmm. and she is like clearly daydreaming and lost thinking about that kiss. And it gave me huge vibes of the scene in the mummy where Evie is on the boat and she's brushing her hair and she's like, and her hair's like all wild and big in the same way. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, it wasn't even that good of a kiss or whatever. Like it (laughs) it, it, exact. I was like, that is like the exact moment. It's the same thing. And I, I, I was like, holy cow, they, 100% <laughs> somebody watched this movie and decided to do that moment in The Mummy. <laughs> Another thing that I thought was really interesting, little detail, I feel like Helena Bonham Carter was playing at least some of the piano we see I in the I have the same thought at one of, one of the points where we see her actual like hands moving. Yeah, 
and with her on like it's yeah. her it's not just hands you know we see her face connected to her arms and her hands mm-hmm. and and she's if not playing piano faking it very well yeah. obviously what we're hearing is put in after the fact right. but she is playing to me from to my untr- I'm not a piano player but I know enough <laughs> to like know when somebody's faking it versus kind of doing it and i was like that looks like she's actually kind of doing it yeah i mean i wouldn't be surprised at all if she just knew how to play right piano yeah i mean a a lot of people just learn to play piano (laughs) when they're kids especially if you're um of a particular like social Social, class yeah for sure it's absolutely incredible to me how unattractive they managed to make daniel day lewis in this movie yep like Very, him that obnoxious little mustache. I just, I want nothing to do with him in this film. Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> very different. Very different. Very different. Very different story. <laughs> That's fair. That is fair. <laughs> There's this exchange when uh when Freddie meets George. When Freddie meets George, where he he walks in and he says to George, "Come and have a bath." And George Emerson responds, "I'd like that." And I said, the, uh, in my mind, I was like, the George and Freddie fanfic must be Legion. Because <laughs> the way that interaction, I, there was an energy there that I was like, and knowing Ian Forrester's bat, I feel like this is rife for <laughs> for some slash fic, for sure. Uh, there was a, a, a moment I loved in the movie. Um, this is post the uh, naked shenanigans scene yeah. when Charlotte gets there. And she's like, oh, I found out that the Emersons are here. Have you seen him? And Lucy goes, I have seen him. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, you did, girl. Hell yeah, you did. Yes, you did. So getting back to a thing I mentioned earlier, when when we were talking about Cecil and his awkwardness, and not his awkwardness, but his... um, the fact that he's unaware of how obnoxious he is yeah. and like he, it's not malicious. And I actually found it really striking that I feel like Cecil and George are kind of equally awkward and completely oblivious, but in totally opposite ways mm. where Cecil is obnoxious and obl- or completely oblivious and awkward in a way that is insufferable. He's just pretentious and, and, and possessive and a jerk. Um, whereas George is completely like oblivious and awkward in a way that's very endearing. Yeah. But they feel like two sides of the same coin to me. Yes. And I thought that was each other's foils. Yeah. Really cool. Because again, it's, 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 you could see, uh, you could see George being were George raised by a man that wasn't his father. Yes. He could easily have been Cecil. Yeah, and just, were Cecil, just as obnoxious. Were and Cecil raised by Mr. Emerson, he could be George. Yeah. And I thought that was really. Yes. It, it is a very deft hand at, at two characters being each other's foil. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it, it ties back to it, uh, not to uh, not to bring everything back to free will, but it did. It very much um, felt like a, kind of a, a commentary on that or like a, an allusion to the fact that. Again, I could see where um, the people are a product of their circumstances and yes. and, and their, you know, uh, the moral luck of their birth, not some weird, innate, unchangeable thing inside mm-hmm. of them. Uh, you know, if you, if like myself, you don't believe in souls or whatever, you people are formed by their environment, by the people that bring them up, by every experience they've ever had. And again, I think where George were Cecil raised by Mr. Emerson, but you know, born to the same parents or whatever, but 
adopted when he was a day old and raised by Mr. Emerson, he would essentially be George, basically. Yeah. And I, I again, I that kind of stuff always really appeals to me as somebody who doesn't think free will exists. So there you go. Um, final couple notes before we get to the final verdict. Uh, there's this really in the film. I don't know if you noticed this. Did you see this <laughs> when they're reading the book yeah. after tennis? Lucy like has her feet kind of out in front of her. Yeah, she's and, sitting on the ground. And George is sitting like kind of between her legs, like laying there. And she like pushes her feet out to like read the book. And when she does that, George like looks down at her feet and the look on his face, the way he looks at her, I was like, oh, okay. He loves every part of her. <laughs> every part of her, every part including of her. her feet. It is that man gives the thirstiest of looks <laughs> at her ankles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ankles are very scandalous. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then I think that cracked me up is post wedding. <laughs> Helen, nineteen year old Helen and Bonham Carter assumes her final form when they go back to Florence. <laughs> They're sitting at that dinner table, and she is wearing this elaborate black dress yes. that is the out the, the the dress that she will wear in every film until she dies. <laughs> and I was like, holy cow! They put it. She she wore that in her first film, and Tim Burton and every yeah. director since and then they has all, been like they all sat up and went wait. <laughs> more of that <laughs> i couldn't believe it because the rest of this movie you know it's like very like period and not that it's not period but it's just it was so funny to me that she's in this completely stark black dress that yeah. it feels like everything you've ever seen helena bonham carter wear uh i just it killed me all right, before we get to the final verdict, we wanted to remind you, you can do us a giant favor by heading over to patreon.com slash thisfilmwaslit. Support us for a couple bucks a month and get access to all kinds of stuff, including bonus content. And this month, we have a very fun bonus episode. We're talking about School of Rock. Mm -hmm. So if you want to hear, it was so funny that I forgot we were doing that. I just saw a clip from School of Rock the other day. Uh, that is one of my favorite moments from maybe any film, but it's a great, that movie's so good. I can't wait to talk about yeah. it. I love School of Rock so I'm much. I'm very excited to talk about but it. But there's a, there was a clip and I won't say what it is. We'll talk about it in the episode that got, it just like randomly got recommended on Facebook or Reddit or something. And I, it's like a two minute clip and I watched it and I was like, this movie is so good. We should talk about this movie. <laughs> Literally like a week later, I, I saw the notes. And I was like, oh, we are talking. Look at that. Amazing. But yes, you can listen to all of our bonus content, uh, including that for five bucks and up a month. That'll be out uh, pretty soon here. You can also do us a giant favor by heading over to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Goodreads, any of the social media platforms. Just search for This Film is Lit. Uh, follow us and interact. We would like to hear your feedback. We'd like to hear what you thought about A Room with a View, and we will talk about that in our next prequel episode. Uh, and going back to Patreon really quick, if you support us for $15 or more a month, you get access to priority recommendations. And if you do that, you can request something for us to cover and it will move up towards the top of the queue. And this episode is one of those patron requests. Katie, who requested this one? Uh, this was requested by Teresa Schwartz. That's a um, uh, familiar name. My mom. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a pseudo request. It wasn't an official request. Yes. But she said to me that she wanted us to cover this someday. There and I go. said. That day is today. That day is now. <laughs> um. Her birthday was last week, so happy late go. birthday, Mom. Fantastic. Katie, it's time for the final verdict. Now, uh, are you ready for your sentence? Sentence? Oh, but there must be a verdict first. Sentence first. Verdict.
verdict afterward. In the prequel to this episode, I talked about E.M. Forster living as a closeted gay man in a time and place where being a gay man was punishable by law. I also said that I was interested to apply a queer theory lens to this story, and I'd like to do that now. A Room with a View is social satire, it's a romance, and it's also a story about a young person struggling with what she's expected to do versus what she actually feels in her heart. There's a particular line from the novel that I think sums up what Forrester was exploring through this text. One of several things, but one of the main things here. And that quote goes like this. At the end, there was presented to the girl a complete picture of a cheerless, loveless world in which the young rush to destruction until they learn better. A shame-faced world of precautions and barriers, which may avert evil, but which do not seem to bring good. Through his text, Forster asked us to think about the barriers that we assign to ourselves and others, Barriers that we tell each other are in service of our safety and well-being, but what do we lose by putting them up? Do we consign ourselves to, at best, boredom and, at worst, misery? Overall, this film is a very faithful adaptation. I'm sure you all got that from the previous segments. The changes that it did make are, on the whole, changes that I like. But there's one big change that I haven't talked about yet, something that the movie quietly leaves out. At the end of the novel, when George and Lucy are together in Italy, we find out that Lucy's family doesn't approve of the relationship, that her mother wouldn't give her consent for the marriage, and that they essentially had to elope. A well-mannered girl fighting her feelings for a slightly less well-mannered boy isn't the same as a queer relationship in almost any time or place, but this is still a queer story. Lucy isn't supposed to like George. The entire structure of the society she lives in tells her that she shouldn't, and that if she does, she might be as bad as he is. But yet, she does like him. She loves him. She chooses him. She tears down the barriers, and though she loses her safety net, we can see that at the end of the story, she's happy. And that's Forrester's message, that we might lose things when we remove our imaginary barriers, but what we find behind those barriers will replace what we lost tenfold. And for that, I have to give this one to the book. All right, Katie. What's next? Up next, we're finally <laughs> finishing, bringing to a close, our 2022 summer series. Yes. Has there ever been a larger whiplash in quality of writing oh. from going to reading E.M. Forrester to going to reading E.L. James? Man, I just realized E.M. E. Forrester, E.L. James are really... Yes, uh, so up next, we will be talking about Fifty Shades Freed, the final novel in the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy by E.L. James and its 2018 film adaptation of the same name. Yep. So looking forward to that. There you go. That's what's <laughs> coming up. Uh, before that, though, we wanted to remind you, come back in one week's time when we're, we'll be discussing what all of you had to say about A Room with a View. 
if you had any feedback for what we had to say or if you have your own opinions, please share it on Facebook, Twitter, all the places I mentioned earlier. Really appreciate it. Uh, and we'll also be doing a Learning Things segment about Fifty Shades, so look out for that. Uh, and then in two weeks' time, we're talking about Fifty Shades Free and wrapping up this summer series. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.